0: what do you think of the new background is it a bit more interesting there's not much interesting in my apartment <laughs> um i have uh although i don't think i'm obsessive i have a very obsessive kind of looking apartment there was a guy uh came into my apartment he was actually an actor what was his name cameron um who played a serial killer in a in a in a series called mine mind hunter i don't know i haven't seen the series but he was this serial killer in that in that show and um he's a friend of a friend and they were running my apartment one time and his immediate uh response to the apartment was this is the apartment of a serial killer and uh he knows what he's talking about because everything is very organized so it makes it difficult to find a good spot to kind of do anything that doesn't look just very uh, like an apple store uh but you've got this um all right uh It's 11 o'clock, so we'll we'll get started. If anyone's watching for the first time, because I've actually had a few new people signing up, um, before I officially start, just let you know that once a month I give a seminar, and it's always connected in some way with my work and the work of parotheology, uh, but also connects with the wider world of philosophy, psychoanalysis, theology. Um, And I've been doing that now for about three years. And so you have access to all of those seminars and occasionally I will release a seminar uh, onto my uh, my podcast. There's a talks archive I have on iTunes or onto YouTube, but the vast majority are just for you guys. Um, as I say, I'll, I'll maybe release one in three. Occasionally, every, after six months has passed, I'll release one. So um, all of them, the, the idea was, in the past, I get to do one or two talks or even a day of talks, but it's very hard to keep building the work and to work with a consistent group of people over the course of a number of years to really get to the core of the thinking. Because it's all very well if someone hears me the first time and they hear me do some stories about Seamus and a little bit of stuff about died and unknowing, and that maybe intrigues some people and they wanna get deeper into the work, but in the past it was hard for them to do that and primarily it was through books. Now um, it's through these seminars so we can go as deep as we want and some of you have been following my work and have been in the same field of work as me for a long time and my hope is this stuff's not easy. It's not like anything that hopefully has a little bit of depth, it's not easy. Uh, First time you read Kierkegaard for example, um, it's gonna be very, very difficult but um, The idea is if you stick with this for a few years, eventually it'll be like one of those 3D pictures that at first you can't kind of see the image uh, and then it kind of gradually appears. So uh, that's what I'm hoping is happening. All right, so basically I'll get started. I'll take a pause, although I actually might include this little bit in the video because I think that's probably useful for some people. So yeah, I'll just kick on in. Uh, this month's pyro seminar is called confronting the void and it's a little bit of a kind almost like a part two of what we did last month Um, it's also connected with what I've been doing in coffee and concepts so if you've been following those we looked at uh, the gaze and we looked at the concept of dread so this seminar is going to take on some of those things that I've been touching on in coffee and concepts and also building on some of the things that we looked at uh, in the previous Pyro seminar and what I'd like to do is start with this notion of the gaze and I want to kind of give a kind of definition of what this means and by the way in film theory um, there's a woman uh, Laura uh, mulvry, I think her name is who does this stuff on the male gaze, which is loosely taken from Lacan, but it's not really. It's kind of, um, it's something else, it's something different. So I'm not talking about that. I'm gonna be talking about the the phrase and it's kind of proper philosophical context. Um, but I'm gonna refer it to some film theory. And so we're gonna start with the gaze, gonna look at how it's connected to dread, and then look at how that is all connected to the, what's called the technology of paro theology. The technology of paro theology Being the way it's practiced in community, and the way it's practiced individually, and the way it's practiced in liturgy. So start with the gaze. What is the gaze? Um, You know, in a nutshell, uh, I said touched on this in the previous seminar as well. So I won't go into. I'll look at it from a slightly different angle. But in a nutshell, in order to become conscious of ourselves, we need to reflect, and by reflection. Um, what I mean is think of a reflection in a mirror. Uh, You have to throw something out into the world and then bring it back into yourself. So I was reading um, the concept of anxiety and I'm actually going to reference that a little bit, uh, maybe today and definitely in Coffee and Concepts this week. Uh, But Kierkegaard kept on using this term reflection uh, in contrast to inwardness. Um, Reflection was generally seen as a bad thing. And at first, I was really thrown by this because in a very common sense way, uh, reflection simply means to think, to actually be inward. So if someone is sitting, reflecting, uh, the first thing that comes to mind generally is somebody who is deep in thought, who is being inward rather than outward. So I kind of got caught up on kind of trying to really figure out why Kierkegaard was saying that there was a difference here and why reflection was not good, uh, in contrast to also passion, which was. And as I thought about it, I was like, oh, right, okay. Actually, technically the term reflection is about reflecting. In other words, you see something or you see yourself in a mirror and it's brought back on you. So there is an external dimension to reflection, whereas inwardness for Kierkegaard is not some sort of external thing, it's internal. And one way of approaching or beginning to approach what he means by reflection is to think that uh, just as, and I've talked about this in previous seminars, Lacan talks about the mirror phase, where a child gets to know themselves by looking at the the mirror of their siblings or even a literal mirror in which their parents hold them in front of it and say, look, that's you, look how strong you are, look how great you are, but reflected in something in the external world the infant begins to get a sense of themselves. And this is also connected with how Feuerbach thinks of religion, which is in order for the human, for society, uh, for um, kind of the human essence to be revealed, it first has to be put out onto something, namely the screen that is God, and then brought back. And so for Feuerbach, reflection is happening, which is, called mediation right so it's something that's immediate you don't reflect it's not outside and comes back and mediation means there's like three parts there's there's a there's a distancing and there's a coming back and uh, even freud sees this um, or even freud freud sees this in the in even the infant who plays uh, he sees one child playing this game called fort da where the child throws a spool away from himself and then draws it back in saying fort and da, which I think is presence and absence, something like that in French or whatever. But uh, it's this presence and absence game. So for Kierkegaard, reflection isn't good because what that means is, I mean, even if it's necessary, there's all these problems with it, namely that we start to see ourselves externally and we see ourselves reflected in society and we judge ourselves in relation to the other. And as you probably know, even if you don't know much, Kierkegaard, he's very suspicious of what he calls the crowd. He's very suspicious of people losing themselves by um, kind of projecting themselves into some sort of mass population, just thinking what other people think, retweeting what other people tweet, you know, not thinking for themselves, but falling into what the herd thinks. And. Um, So reflection is a little bit like I get to know myself by seeing you and judging myself in relation to you. And sometimes I'll judge myself well in relation to others and sometimes badly in relation to others, but I'm always kind of having a relationship with myself through a relationship with others. Now, when it comes to the notion of the gaze, Lacan is talking about this disturbing experience in which um, this uh, this reflection breaks down there's something about this reflection that doesn't work because what happens is I'm reflecting out I'm, I'm maybe I'm feeling insecure as, a, as, as an infant my body's not working the way I want it to work I'm confused uh, everything's chaos I'm not in control of my life But as i look out at adults and my older siblings and i see them interacting with the world i get an image of um, wholeness i get an image of something complete i get an image of control i get an image of being an agent within the world and that helps me as i reflect as i bring that into myself i start to feel like an agent in the world and say this can go wrong and that all we ever do is think that everybody else is great and I'm not, right? So the reflection is kind of failed in some way. I haven't brought that back into myself or I might have a very high opinion of myself and think that I'm fantastic and I'm great and everything's good, but I'm using this external image in order to kind of create an image of myself as uh, or an image of wholeness, an image of completeness of agency in the world. But that image always has the potential of falling short. I mean, that's kind of what Kierkegaard calls dread, is the the notion in which just uh, uh, this notion of everything's good and everything's fine and you can have a place in the world and you have a reflection of the mass who seem to know the answer and you kind of relate to that. This is all always uh, fragile and has the potential of collapsing. And for the later Lacan, this experience can be called the gaze. And it's kind of like a gaze. Uh, it's like if someone looks at you, you're looking at someone in the park and they suddenly turn around and stare at you and you feel yourself looked at by another and suddenly you're disturbed. Um, this, is a, this is kind of an experience of the gaze. Actually, I'll tell you a story about what happened last night to me. Um, I went out, there was a food truck outside. I went over to get some food and there was a guy there. Um, he was a, uh, you know, probably homeless guy looked like, uh, you know, very, pretty tough looking guy. And, uh, obviously on some kind of some drug and feeling a bit paranoid and he started kind of threatening me. And at first it was all fine. I didn't feel too nervous and I talked to him and if anything, from going to a bad school you learn that the best way to not fight is to show no fear no anxiety and no threat so you just like you know do your thing but he's staring at me i'm staring at him he starts following me around and i turn around to talk to him and then i notice that he has this eight inch <laughs> saw in his hand and suddenly um, i was like oh i'm not in control of the situation this is a little bit more nerve wracking than I first thought, but I still kind of kept calm. I was, and I, there was a, a shop, which the shopkeeper had seen all of this, so he'd locked the door. But um, I walked towards the shop, uh, wrapping a sweater around my arm in case I needed it. Uh, the guy unlocked the door and I went in. Um, but I guess <laughs> that experience um, of the blade was a type of experience of dread suddenly I was, everything was fine, everything was good in my life and I had no thought about myself dying, I I was just literally going across the road to get something to eat Um, and then and even when he was threatening me it still felt relatively under control, relatively fine and then just the glance because you get very myopic in those situations as you know so you're looking the person in the eye but then you know you glance to see any other threat and you're like, wow, how did I miss that? That is a very big threat that he just pulled out of the back of his jeans. Um, and suddenly it's like you get this moment of everything could change. You know, my life could just, you know, potentially not end like that, but I could be in hospital uh, in 10 minutes <laughs> and uh, this could, this could radically change everything. And so that there's partly, there's a, just a fear in that, but there's also a experience of, how life can just go in a a very different direction suddenly you get a glimpse of potentiality this is actually something i'm going to talk about tomorrow in coffee and concepts but Kierkegaard talks about how humans are disrupted by the atom of eternity and what he means by that is uh, temporality time is just entropy that's kind of all it is time is not even past present and future because that's a space spatialization of time it's a wrong way to think of time time is this flow of entropy in the world um, and if the experience of time is really just the experience of time that an animal has no history it's just this flow of entropy and then uh, Kierkegaard says eternity is very different it is a singular moment that is full of every potentiality and when he talks about human beings being between time and eternity, what he means is that our temporality is disturbed by eternity. There's a contradiction, a synthesis, he calls it. and The synthesis is the atom of eternity. And when you encounter the atom of eternity, you basically briefly glimpse kind of all of the possibilities that lie in front of you. You kind of suddenly realize your life isn't just on a normal track. There's all of these things can happen. And that, again, is what Kierkegaard calls dread, is the encounter with the atom of eternity that is in us. I, kinda, I think a good way to think about it is um, when you encounter it, it's like cracking the atom. So there's a nuclear explosion. And um, for Kierkegaard, that's a very important thing to encounter. He thinks we spend most of our lives trying to avoid encountering this atom of eternity. It's kind of like the the super an existential superpositioning, where you see momentarily that your life can go in all sorts of crazy directions. Anyway, um, that's a disturbing feeling, and that's kind of like the gaze. And what the gaze does is it reveals our own imp- impotence to ourselves, and it reveals the impotence of the things that we value, the things that we think bring wholeness and completeness. It helps us briefly glimpse the kind of fantasy structure of our lives. Uh, and, and it's kind of disturbing. So I wanna, I wanna take three examples from movies uh, and then we'll move on. So one movie I'm gonna use, cause Todd McGowan refers to it in a short video that I recommended you watch alongside this seminar. Um, is uh, Citizen Kane. Now, by the way, before I get onto Citizen Kane, I'll say this is, um, great movies generally can be seen as helping you encounter the gaze. That's kind of like the almost unique um, aesthetic dimension to movie making, right? Is it's very, very connected to this notion of the gaze. And the reason for that is movies do fascinate us. We see ourselves reflected in the movies that we watch. Uh, So whenever I go to a movie that I like, it's not just I'm passively watching it. In some way, it reflects back my values um, to me. And so I'm hooked into it. That's why movies are great to watch to understand the ideology of a culture. They're not very useful to understand how we should desire or how we should be. They simply are reflections of how we do desire. They're reflections of the ideological moment. They're like a snapshot, a Polaroid picture of the ideological space the society inhabits. So when you go, that's why Shizek does a lot of analysis of movies because they're a great way of analyzing contemporary ideology. So when you go to a movie, it captures your gaze, right? It captures your desire. It reflects that desire in some way and it satisfies it, even at a, just a phantasmic level. It, it kind of, um, just like a dream can, if you're thirsty and you dream of drinking water, it's not as good as drinking water, but at a, uh, in a phantasmic kind of way, uh, you do get some satisfaction, right? You're at least in the imagination. So the movie can, can uh, link your desire you know get grasp your desire like a hook uh, it can evoke it incite it ensnare it uh, and manipulate it right but most movies we watch that's what they do they are they're actually designed not to help you confront the gaze right so the movie gives you the fantasy it gives you the desire it gives you the reflection of wholeness the hero and the heroine who you can look up to and admire who who somehow grasps the, the ideological, uh, dement, the, the ideals of your society and yourself. So that's most Hollywood movies. But some movies um, expose the gaze. And these are often considered to be the great movies, right? A great movie does that. So Citizen Kane is an example of a movie that's seen as one of the greatest films of all time. And it has a, a very obvious example of this where Charlie Cain, who's this incredibly rich um, uh, kind of media mogul, uh, is on his deathbed. And he has everything he could possibly want. He has money and he has authority and he has this this reputation. Um, And yet when he's dying, he says the word rosebud. And rosebud signals or signifies something that he desires more than everything he has, right? There's some melancholy in that word. What is Rosebud? And this guy goes off in search of it. He goes, I'm gonna find out what is it that this person who seems to have everything, what is it that they are missing? What is it that they are desiring? You know, their desire should be completely satisfied by everything they have. And at the end of the movie, he hasn't figured it out, right? And uh, he kind of goes, maybe we'll never know who or what Rosebud is. And then the closing scene of the film is when we see some of uh, Charles Keane's possessions being uh, either separated for auction or destroyed if they were worthless. And so uh, a sledge is picked up and a guy says, i just junk, throw it in the fire. Throw it in the fire and you see that the name of the sled is Rosebud. And uh, you kind of are confronted with, this idea that oh the thing that this guy wanted most of all was a piece of junk it was an old sled now it was an old sled that was connected to his childhood and to innocence and to all of that but ultimately it wasn't something wonderful and amazing it's just an old piece of wood right and so you're kind of confronted with this truth of our desire that what we desire the wholeness and the completeness is a is a type of fiction it covers over a lack Right? It covers over something, so you're confronted with that. Uh, another famous example is uh, the film Vertigo, where basically a man falls in love with a woman who doesn't exist. She's just a fiction that's created to ensnare his desire. And as the film moves on, we realize, or we, we, we realize through him, we already know, but we, we see him realize that the, the one he loves more than anything is simply a memory, is simply uh, what's called a simulacra, a copy of something that doesn't even exist. It's just a woman who, there's a real woman who was acting this woman. She was playing a part and he fell in love with the part and, um, uh, you know, and, and the film plays around that kind of theme. But uh, even Fight Club could be seen as confronting the audience with the, the uh, impotence, of the gears or the experience of the gears, because uh, maybe in two ways. So in Fight Club, uh, the protagonist uh, sees through all of the things that should be bring value, the things that we value in society. You know, nice house, all of these. You know, the perfect possessions, a job with with security. You know, basically, he has all of this, the normal things, and we experience through him their utter impotence. But also then we discover that uh, you know, his uh, resistance against that and his desire to destroy everything, as well as another kind of a way of attempting to find ultimate meaning. And then we discover again, the impotence of that. And so in Fight Club, you, maybe you, you kind of encounter the gaze twice. Uh, and I think that's partly why it's such a powerful movie. Um, and then one, one more. Uh, is a French film by uh, Celine, uh, what's her name? Celine uh, Sciamma called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the outline of the film. And then if you haven't watched it, the other ones I don't mind, because they're super old. If you haven't seen them, spoilers, doesn't matter. But this one, if you you wanna watch the movie and you don't want any spoilers, I'll tell you when to stop watching this and you can just fast forward five minutes, right? Um, uh, this portrait of a lady on fire is about this young woman Eloise who is to be married to this kind of aristocratic figure and this woman I think her name is Marianne or Marianne uh, is is uh, going to paint her portrait and the portrait's going to be sent I think to her husband her husband-to-be and the whole movie is about the love affair that kind of grows or the, the palpable desire that grows between the artist and Eloise, right? So at this point, you know, stop watching if you do want to have any spoilers and say, jump forward five minutes. So at th- one of the central parts of the film is it's kind of loosely based on a Greek myth of Orpheus and uh, uh, Eurydices. And um, the story of Orpheus and Eurydices goes like this. Orpheus is the son of Apollo and he has this gift of music and he has a lyre or a leer lyre you call it where he can play incredible music that seduces anyone and anything. And anyway, uh, Orpheus falls in love with Eurydice and they have a short but passionate and very happy marriage. But they are told by a prophecy that this will be short-lived. And sure enough, one day, uh, Eurydice is out dancing with the nymphs in the forest. And uh, she's accosted by somebody and in trying to get away from this guy. She's bitten by a snake and she dies. And she goes into the underworld. Well, Orpheus is distraught. And Orpheus decides to go into the underworld and rescue Eurydices. But this is almost impossible for any normal mortal and most gods. You would die by going into the underworld. But Orpheus is protected by the gods and is strong and is courageous and goes into the underworld. And through his music, he's able to uh, win over Cerberus, the three-headed dog of hell. He's able to survive in the underworld and eventually meets Hades. And Hades is won over as well by Orpheus. So Orpheus has gone through all of these trials, like sacrificed everything and basically almost died to, to get Eurydices back. Now Hades takes a, um, uh, what's that? He takes a liking to Orpheus and says, okay, I'll, I'll let Eurydice leave. Now, this doesn't usually happen, but it'll give you one chance. Uh, but in order for Eurydices to leave, you have to do one thing. And Orpheus is expecting something very difficult. He's already done incredibly difficult things. So he's expecting something tough and he's ready for it. And Hades says this. He says, all you have to do is walk out of Hades and Eurydice will follow you. Play your music and she will follow you out. That's all you have to do. But don't glance back. If you look back, even for a moment, Eurydice will be kept in, had, in, in the underworld forever It was so super easy well Orpheus is walking towards uh, earth out of the underworld uh, Eurydice is following him and just when he's a few steps away he thinks to himself is she really behind me can I really hear her footsteps and he looks back just to see just a glance just to make sure that she's following him sure enough he sees her and then she is pulled back into Hades forever, right? Now this story is part of the movie, right? So this is being told within the film. And whenever it's told, this maid, who's part of the movie, she says, oh, Orpheus is an idiot, right? So the maid basically does what Watson does in uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, or the police officers in Columbo do. You always have to have a figure who says the obvious uh, interpretation right so that the the, the right their true interpretation the smart interpretation comes out by the other person so she's the Watson and she says well Orpheus is just an idiot right he's too uh, you know weak and he's too impatient and he looks back to see her and it's all lost so just an impatient idiot and Eloise says well no Maybe Orpheus wanted the memory of Eurydice more than the person. All right. So this is the point when the truth of the movie is revealed, uh, because this is this, the really the truth of the, the two protagonists. Right. They are the 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 artist and Eloise. That um, uh, that all it's a doomed love affair. But in a way, that's what they want, because if it doesn't work, if they're apart then they can keep the dream alive of how amazing it could have been, right? So in a way, the film very subtly confronts you with the impotence of our fantasies, of the wholeness of a love affair, of of what could have happened. Now, it's it's subtle, but it's there. And so there's something very traumatic about the movie. There's something very traumatic is on the surface level, they can't be together. But there's something even more traumatic that if you're watching carefully you encounter, which is, oh yeah, they couldn't be together even if they were. Because if they ended up together, it would be a disaster. But what they then did, and Eloise knowingly did, is let her go in order to keep a memory alive. But a memory of what? In a way, a memory of something that never even existed. A memory of what could have been. A memory of a future that never happened. So it's not a, a, um, a copy of a reality. It's a simulacra, which is a copy of something that didn't exist, a copy of a copy. So again, in a film like that, you cinematically get a glimpse of the gaze that's disruptive. Now, you know, if you followed my work for a while, you know that one of the ideas here is actually, while this is very traumatic, Um, It's actually very freeing. So in your life, if there's something, some memory you have of a time, it's actually not really a time. Like there's people who have memories of their relationship with their ex-wife or ex-husband that is a memory of something they never had. Once they've broken up, they weirdly are caught up in this memory of some Beautiful time that actually didn't really exist, right? Or we can do that with childhood, or we can do it with if only I'd been with that person, someone that you couldn't be with. Uh, you you suddenly have a memory almost of of how it, how it could be, but it's not a memory of anything real. And actually seeing through that and realizing, well, something can be good and can, and it, you know could have been good if you were with that person, but it would not be the the reflection that you've created, the ideal reflection that you are immersed in and you're drawn by, that's a type of fiction. And so you glimpse that and it kind of like breaks you out of that frenetic death drive for wholeness and completeness and satisfaction, right? Uh, It allows you to make peace with a lack within you, not a loss. A loss is losing something that you had, a lack, is a gap that never, it didn't exist. It's a gap that's constitutive of who you are. So you're able to make peace with that gap. Now, the example that Lacan uses to kind of talk about the gaze is this very interesting painting by Hans Holbein called The Ambassadors. Now, this painting is interesting because when you look at it, It looks like um, a very standard painting of the time. There are two ambassadors and they are young and they are strong and they're standing in a very strong pose and they have very uh, rich clothing, the symbolic clothing of authority. And they're also surrounded by all of these symbols that represent learning and represent culture and represent power. So you're looking at two people who are Uh, kind of uh, uh, the pinnacle of the society that they're in right but there's also this blur in the photo in the bottom of the photo and you can't make out exactly what it is it's just this weird kind of like a like looks like a mistake in this perfectly drawn painting this weird kind of blur of color that makes no sense at all But if you reposition yourself in relation to the painting and you look at the painting from the bottom left hand corner, looking up, that blur turns into a perfect skull and the skull is looking back at you. That picture is like an image of the gaze. That you're looking out at something that seems perfect and great and wonderful that you're caught up in, that you're mesmerized by, an image that, 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 that ensnares you. And then you're ensnared by it, but suddenly you, you see a gap within it. You see a lack and the lack looks at you. This skull, a symbol of nothingness, the real death, right? This gap you feel. And it's a shock, Again, it's similar to what maybe Kierkegaard would call dread. It's this shock that shocks you out of your complacency. Um, it's, it's painful, but also it's a liberating experience because you realize that all of these things that you're chasing for wholeness and completeness, it, it, they don't work because they are incomplete in and of themselves. If you've got all of that stuff, there's still a lack that is within it because there's something about being human that is being at contradiction and, and not at oneness with the world. So you can never get that oneness. I mean, this is why, by the way, Kierkegaard is against paganism, Gnosticism, New Age thinking, because those things, and for, for, by the way, for Kierkegaard as a Christian, he would see most, well, really all institutional Christianity as Gnosticism. He would see it as an attempt to kind of move away from dread Right, because um, for him Christianity is a very precise thing, and and part of Christianity is is about acknowledging the contradiction that we are, the not at oneness with the world that we are. Where he talks about we are between mind and matter, and we are between time and eternity, spirit, which is is the contradiction of those two of those things. Right, the contradiction of mind and matter, uh, and the contradiction of time and eternity in the subject is spirit and the evidence of spirit is anxiety or dread and instead of trying to run away from dread it must become our teacher it must become our friend we must learn how to live with it and live within it and there we find a connection with the absolute through inwardness we connect with the spirit which is contradiction so it's very very different from you know, confessional Christianity, that's why when Kierkegaard died, people didn't want him buried in the church because they saw him as the enemy of the the church. Um, And he was very, very critical of institutional religion, and yet unapologetically Christian. Um, So why was I saying that? Oh yeah, so the gaze is the thing that confronts us with the contradiction that we are, through seeing it in the ideal that's outside of us. And so now I want to come to explicitly paro theology and the technology of paro-theology, how it's played out in a liturgical form. And what I want to say is that, and hopefully this is the clearest way I've ever said it, is if you want to have an idea of what the paro theology in practice looks like, it's Hans, binds the ambassadors. Right? You think of the liturgical structure as the painting. People go into church and they, uh, like it, they go into a movie, and they're projecting their ideals and their desires onto the screen of the liturgy. And the liturgy is hooking that desire. It is allowing that desire to find a place within it. But then, the liturgy enacts a direct confrontation with a type of internal lack. Now, this is what and, and luther this is the one verse that supposedly terrified luther the most when he preached it was the verse my god my god why have you forsaken me because luther understood that that is the most profound <laughs> statement probably in the new testament um, it is the the moment when you see within the ideal that is god a gap that stares back at you and so it's very very traumatic That is the skull in in Holbein's The Ambassadors. So the idea for the leader is to construct a liturgy that kind of does does three things. One, it captures the person's desire. It captures the person's notion of God. So it enacts what's called the deus ex machina, what Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina. The liturgy kind of enacts the religious God in some way. Two, it allows for transference so it allows people then to find their desire within the liturgy their desire for the ideal god who'll fix everything who'll make everything good who allows us to understand who we are in our perfection and then three it uh, confronts us with the gaze it confronts us with the gap that's within that and then The congregation enter into what uh, what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. You, I think, salvation, which is the experience of the loss of perfection, the embrace of the contradiction, and then freedom from their frenetic pursuit of finding something that will make us whole and complete, whether it's money, fame, people, whatever. But while keeping our desire alive, that's very key. This is very key in Kierkegaard. Is like we can desire but we desire without end. Uh, A great example of this, by the way, I think a really good example of this is language, right? What is meaning, right? So all language is, 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 is signifiers, right? Words, and they're strung together, right? Now, where does meaning arise out of? Like in our heads, we almost think that there's some words that just connect with reality. But words don't connect with reality, words just connect with other words. If you read a dictionary, right, if you try to learn language by reading a dictionary, every word in the dictionary, if it's complete, just points to other words. There's no word that you get to which is somehow rooted in, re- in the real, that you just read and completely understand what it means in, in terms of its reality outside of language. There is no outside of language, it's just words connecting with words. But in the ongoing failure of of, of finding some end, some point in which meaning is, is coupled with the world, that process generates meaning. It's the, it's the literal stringing of words together that generates concepts and ideas and meaning. And so this weirdly means that sometimes we can feel that we can never express ourselves. We can never express who we are to another person or to ourselves, because there's something elusive in language. That means it's, it's there's always miscommunication you can't get away from it you can't have pure communication and yet it's in that miscommunication that communication occurs i think it's a similar way to think about in relation to desire we're thinking about finding something that will give us pleasure ultimate pleasure but it's actually the vocation of struggle and engagement and and finding a vocation and finding something to give your life to that that never it never ends, but in a never ending and the giving yourself over to the work, pleasure is produced as a kind of epiphenomenon, as a, as, a, as a surplus to what you're doing. So you can never pursue happiness directly. You'd be unhappy. It's only a surplus that you find through giving yourself over to work. Just like meaning is never found by the precise word, meaning is you give yourself over to just speaking you don't think about it, you give yourself over to speaking and meaning kind of arises, but also with miscommunication. Right? Um, so the vocation of the person who does theology is to give themselves over to this kind of three part structure is they help people to, um, uh, by reflecting the, 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 the ideals of the, of the people they're working with, they allow for the transference to happen, so the person links in their desire into the the image. They reflect it back to themselves, and then you encounter you help them encounter the gaze by showing the type of impotence that lies within that ideal. And when you do that, the person experiences a freedom. What what Kierkegaard calls a qualitative leap, which means a radically different form of being in the world. You're no you no longer so. Something I said the other day in um, uh, Pints and Parables, but it's, I'll repeat it here. Because by the way, that's what a parable does. A parable starts usually with the what everybody thinks, right? So it starts by giving the the, the view that is common. And then once you see yourself as the protagonist in the parable, then the parable at the end turns it and suddenly you see that it's, it's, like some, it's, it's the other way around. You see a completely different way of, of thinking, right? So a parable hooks you in by giving you your ideal. Uh, it allows the transference to occur, and then it, it twists it. And a qualitative leap means that you move from one way of being to another. So if you take the word apocalypse as an example, that if you have an apocalyptic idea uh, or movie, the idea is the whole world is destroyed, and then at the other side, of the, a new world is created. So in some apocalyptic sci-fi, the world's blown up, but eventually the aliens are defeated, and on the other side, we have a better world, a world where people are less violent, less uh, per- in pursuit of things, or more family-oriented or something like that, right? Um, or there's less need. But the issue with that is, in a way, everything's destroyed except for our, the way we desire. Right? We're just unfulfilled here and then we're fulfilled after the apocalypse. A truly apocalyptic moment in religious terms is when nothing necessarily is destroyed in the world, but you're absolutely destroyed and reconfigured. So the way you desire is different. So it's not that you just desire and you don't have what you want until the next life. It's that you don't desire in the same way at all. There's a different form of desire arises that um, frees you from the kind of like uh, being lost in the crowd and being lost in the herd and being lost in the frenetic pursuit of happiness. And that's the, that's the salvation of uh, theology, I think, <laughs> you know? All right, I think that's basically what I wanna cover. My goodness, I was talking for a while. I'm just gonna see if there's any questions uh, in the chat box and then we'll, I'll let you go. Hey Seamus, how's it going? Good to see you. I'm glad you're enjoying i don't know when you wrote that hopefully you still enjoyed it uh, after you wrote that so tim says um is gaze an event and dread that feeling that results from the gaze you know i kind of so i'm using two terms from two different people so lacan is the gaze and Kierkegaard is more dread they're all interconnected um, but because they're coming from two different people I don't think it's as neat as that. For for Lacan, I think the gaze is the experience of the uh, the the experience of the impotence in the reflection that's felt back, and th- th- rather than the gaze being something objective and then dread being the feeling, I think the feeling is in what Lacan calls the gaze has the feeling of dread within it. Um, they're just used to diff- slightly different purposes. So I think they're basically the same. It's just Kierkegaard is thinking more about freedom and uh, he's thinking more about uh, experiencing ourselves as having infinite potentiality and having to figure out how we cope with that. We don't want to cope with that. We want to avoid it. So I think, you know, basically I would say that dread is a type of confrontation with the gays. Um uh, as far as I can see, they're they're pretty much actually this kind of the same thing. Oh, yeah, Tim says, Israel had a memory of Egypt that didn't exist, right? that That sounds like it could very well be true. Um, my uh, my recollection of of the Hebrew scriptures is pretty poor, but I think that sounds probably very right. Um, Apollo says, uh, this talk reminded me of two things. Uh, pete's article in caputo's its books and adam phillips books missing Night" in praise of an unlived life yes that's very good yeah adam phillips book in praise uh missing Night" is a good example of i think it's a great example of what Kierkegaard means you can make these connections i mean i do think that like existentialism psychoanalysis radical theology are in the same wheelhouse and they're all drawn from hegelian philosophy and what Adam Phillips does really beautifully in that book, Missing Out, is he says that we live between who we are and who we'd like to be, and we live between what we have and what we would like to have. And, you know, instead of the idea of us trying to move to one of those poles, uh, Adam Phillips is basically saying we we are the in-between. And that's that's what Kierkegaard calls spirit. That's literally, I, I love this, Like Kierkegaard gives a very precise definition of spirit, and it is, he calls it the synthesis, the synthesis of the contradiction between basically the polls that Adam Phillips, uh, you know, mentioned. So yeah, absolutely hundred percent. Rob says is propaganda a way of, yeah, I know where you go. Yeah. Is propaganda a way of concealing the gaze in the way popular films do in order to manipulate desire for the sake of ideology? Absolutely. I think, you know, propaganda is yeah, ultimately, the, the, you know, it, its desire is to cover cover over the contradiction that, that the gaze offers, or probably, you know, basically, or reduce the contradiction to opposition. So what it does is it, it, it evokes the contradiction, but it then says that the contradiction is not something that is uh, ontological, it is unnecessary, it's accidental and it's related to those people over there. And it can be you know it can be Republicans, it can be immigrants, it can be you know, it can be anybody. <laughs> it's, it's whoever whenever the contradiction is reduced to opposition. So you could say that that's what propaganda is. It, it actually wants to evoke the gaze in a way it actually wants to evoke the dread. it wants you to feel it, and then it wants to give you a false solution to it. Uh, and so yeah. There you go, and I think a lot of journalism, the worst kind of journalism, does exactly the same thing. Yeah, so that that would be a way of I think describing it. Uh, Seamus says, uh, "Can the crucifixion be seen in light of the atom of eternity?" Yes, very much so. This is all connected. Um, this is why I mean, it's very difficult to work out what exactly Kierkegaard meant by Christianity sometimes because he was unapologetically Christian, just like Hegel was. I think it's really funny, by the way, you see a lot of progressive and liberal Christians who don't want to you know, use the word Christian and kind of like avoid it and move around. And then you get people like Shizek and Todd McGowan and um, uh, Hegel and Kierkegaard who are unapologetic about using the terms. And they're all very different. Shizek's a radical atheist, Todd McGowan's atheist, no involvement in the church. Uh, then you've got Kierkegaard, who's radically Christian but hates the church profoundly, um, and then you have Hegel, who sees himself as a good Lutheran but really just doing philosophy. But all of them use the term. There was actually a podcast that Todd McGowan was on recently. It was very funny listening to it because uh, the the interviewer said, "You know, it almost sounds like you're saying Christianity is is." kind of the right answer and Tom McGowan says like I'm not almost saying it I I am saying it (laughs) but he kind of laughingly said it because he doesn't mean Christianity as a religion he simply means I think he I think Hegel's right I think I think you know he's like I think Hegel's and it's just funny hearing someone like that who's not involved in Christianity at all in a confessional sense or any of the beliefs uh, kind of like being uh, being happy to use the term just like he'd be happy to use the term Hegelian and um so Kierkegaard uses this term but it's very hard to figure out what he means by it because he's so avoiding uh, any connection with the institutional church but one way of cracking that is to see that the whole the idea of the crucifixion is the contradiction i mean it's the contradiction in so many ways time and eternity mind and matter the highest and the infinite and the finite the crucifixion is the the synthesis in Kierkegaard's terms. Hegel doesn't use that term but Kierkegaard uses the term the synthesis of the co- the contradiction. And and so in the same way the atom of eternity is like is basically and by the way this is hilarious when you read Kierkegaard and Hegel they predict kind of modern science because they see contradiction I- embedded within reality itself. So like uh, quantum mechanics is not some kind of like a weird kind of like uh uh like unth- unthinkable kind of uh, s- empirical reality no it's very thinkable it's very thin it's you know it's very much what hegel spent his, his entire life doing is showing how reality itself has contradiction within it and um so so the crucifixion is the superpositioning of time and eternity mind and matter and um it is the point at which we, we supposedly symbolically couple ourselves with well with God, who then God dies. We experience the gaze in the crucifixion and we're freed in order to be able to live in love with one another, freed from the frenetic pursuit of wholeness, which is the collective of the Holy Ghost. So the cross is the, is the place of salvation in the sense of it's the place in which you encounter the radical not-at-oneness of the one. And that's why Kierkegaard stands against all forms of paganism, uh, which are, there is a oneness, we're connected with the earth. If we're not connected with the earth, it's because we are out of balance with the world, but we can be balanced, we can be fully immersed in the world. Gnosticism, which is paganism re Basically, Gnosticism's paganism reintroduced into Christianity. So, Gnosticism is any Christianity that has that idea of balance, wholeness, oneness built into it. And Kierkegaard stands fundamentally against that. It's very funny because Kierkegaard goes that the core of Christianity is dread. <laughs> it's like, um, but but uh, uh, I think he suffered a lot from anxiety. To be honest, I think you can read his dread uh, in, in a very in a in a less terrifying way it's just basically being confronted with the contradiction and that's what the crucifixion is oh john says is gaius closely related to the non-duped air i noticed about uh oh yeah your your movie uh, alone um i see the woman is superstitious and myself is rational but she can only go on the journey because of superstition. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. So first of all, yeah, so John's referring to this uh, notion of Lacan's the non-duped air, and very briefly, it's if someone suffers from, or if someone's within a psychotic structure, which a lot of people are, like nothing wrong with it, we're all in some structure, but if you're caught in a psychotic structure, one of the problems you have is seeing the authority of another. Uh, If you're looking at a police officer, you just see a police officer, or if you see a judge, you just see a judge. <laughs> and um, uh, it's called the non duped air because that sounds like uh, the name of the father, and there's this whole connection. But but really, what it means in a very practical sense is you're not duped because it is just a police officer. A teacher is just a teacher. They're not your mummy, right? You know, most people have had that terrible experience. They put up their hand and say mummy whenever they're trying to say teacher, right, when they're a kid. Um, because you're symbolically identifying the teacher with an authority in your mother. But some people, they can't do that. They just go, it's just a teacher. And so it's very hard because you have to still obey the teacher or you'll get in trouble, but you can't kind of get into the transference. And it's called the non-duped error because you're gonna get in trouble, right? You kind of like, you err by, by literally by not being duped. If you're duped, you're less likely to err. <laughs> um, and yes, John's connecting that with the, with the film alone. Which I think I'll show to everybody on Patreon at some point. Um, uh, which um, uh, the woman who basically her child is suffering. She she needs a, she needs a cure for her child. The only way she can find the true cure, which is a confrontation with the gaze, which is realization of death at the heart of everything, um, and that everyone carries that death. So that's what this basically alone is. I mean, it's exactly what I'm talking about here, to be honest. Um, it's the journey from looking for the thing that will fix everything to confronting the, the impotence of the ideal to then finding some sort of way to mourn, to put words to that, to find community around that. Right? That's the, that's the whole movie in a nutshell. And the woman, as she tries to find, she has to find these seeds from a home that hasn't been touched by suffering and loss, but every home she goes to has been touched by suffering and loss. And that's how she gradually is able to move um, from, I basically have a qualitative leap, actually, which is what Kierkegaard is about, a qualitative leap from finding the answer to being in a place where the answer is there is no answer um, is related to the fact that she's caught up in the desire. And then there's a wise woman who helps very indirectly to break that so John, what you're you're asking I think is what happens if you can't if you can't get into the transference if you like the job like like I mentioned of a parable is it hooks you in with your desire, you relate to it, you move along with it, and then it throws you and then you experience the qualitative leap, hopefully those with ears to hear, those with ears to hear will hear the qualitative leap if you can't do that um, uh, yeah then then there's just a different strategy and you're talking about it it's yeah so i think i should have to do a whole talk on on that at some stage uh i think to some extent here's the whether someone is more neurotic or more psychotic uh it's the same it's coming to terms with the lack but the way it looks is different and the way one does that is different and um Yeah, and so you're asking a very, very good question, a difficult question. But uh, just to clarify again, because I think it's very, very good. What John is saying is in something like Alone, the woman is looking for the answer, right? Bring back my child. This wise woman says, I can help you, but, you know, find these seeds from a home that hasn't been burned by the black sun of suffering that has scorched your life so the woman says something that's non-committal doesn't say i can bring back your child and doesn't say i can't but says i can help you allows the woman to fantasize that what she means is the child will come back the transference then goes out into the world and the, the the words of the woman have allowed her to talk to others to symbolize the loss to encounter other people's loss and so eventually she becomes free herself right so that's that's the standard move. Um, if you can't, as I say, fall for the fantasy, if you're non chipped at the beginning, then, um, then, yeah, then there's a yeah there's a different process and i'm going to have to i'm going to have to think th- this is the difficulty in psychoanalysis between working with someone who has a psychotic structure and a neurotic structure because if you get someone with a psychotic structure to begin to doubt and question it can cause a break it doesn't work um uh, so what you have to do is help them confront the lack um in uh in their own way and i'm trying to think but yeah yeah, this is. I'm just fascinated because this is a question I was talking to a friend of mine, Chris Fry, about. He's a psychoanalyst, and um, it's a uh, yeah, it's a tough one. So I won't say anything more because I'm gonna. I'll try and come back and address that, and probably in a coffee and concepts. Thank you very much for the question. <laughs> all right, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much for checking in, and I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye bye.